Welcome to Manage Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansaro, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Everyone is affected by rising health care costs, and for employers, the problem is particularly acute. Previous ways of managing costs, such as shifting more costs to employees and using high deductible health plans, may come back to haunt the workplace in the form of people skipping needed care because of affordability, leading to fewer healthy workers and increased stress. Today on Managed Carecast, we're talking with Benjamin Isgar, the leader of PwC's Health Research Institute, about their medical cost trend report for 2020 called Behind the Numbers. So PwC, after conducting interviews with 55 health industry experts and analyzing survey results from 2,500 consumers around the country and over 500 employers, says that the increase in the medical cost trend next year will be 6% with a net growth of 5%. What is driving that and what is different in this report that has not been cited in previous reports? Well, there's a few things driving medical cost trend right now. We're just coming off of several years of of a flat but growing medical cost trend. So um, one of the things that we we like to always clarify when we're talking about medical inflation, it always goes up. So we're really just measuring the, the rate of increase or if there's a deceleration or if it's a flat growth rate. So it's been flat for the last couple of years, but for 2020, we're expecting an uptick. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. One is one of the primary ways that um, that U.S. businesses have tried to control medical cost trend has been through utilization and utilization management through high deductibles and more cost sharing. And, and it's worked very well in that utilization has been very close to 0% um, of the medical cost trend over the last decade. So most of the trend is being driven by price. And when we when we look at the inflators for next year, we're looking at things like uh, drug prices uh, increasing over time, primarily because we have more specialty drugs in the pipeline. We're, we're looking at chronic disease uh, continuing to increase. And so a larger proportion of our employee population has chronic conditions, and those are very costly. And we're also looking at more access to mental health services, which in the short term will actually be an inflator of trend, but in the long term will potentially lower costs as people manage their mental health conditions, which then will help them manage other types of physical conditions they have. You use the term employer activism. Can you paint a picture for us about what that looks like? Yes, I mean, employer activism is the idea that uh, if employers want to better manage medical inflation costs, if they want to better uh, manage their employees' health, that they're going to have to be more involved. And this is, and this involvement's at several different levels. So, you know, one of the things that we saw in this report, or we found in this report, is that a lot of the medical cost trend is really being driven by price, not utilization. So employers in the past have been very active about implementing more cost sharing for their employees. But what they haven't been as active about is thinking about building different provider networks of uh, that may be more narrow, where if they've negotiated 
better prices with, with high-performing provider networks. What they haven't done as much in the past is building out their own primary care system. So it's always been a small niche of employers that have had, um, have had primary care clinics on site, you know, work site clinics. Now we're seeing a, a big uptick in both interest and implementation of work site clinics. Employers in the past haven't been as active around nudging their employees to go to lower cost sites of care. And we see more uh, uh, activity in that area. How can they help their employees uh, navigate through the different types of sites of care? So making a choice between do I go to an ER versus an urgent care center versus a clinic versus a telehealth visit. So much more activity there. And last but not least, employers have invested over the last decade in a lot of standalone programs to help manage their employees' health. So this is beyond the health plan that's offered. Many offer carve-out programs for mental health benefits, diet and nutrition services, exercise, chronic disease management, and the reality is um, employees can often be confused because there's multiple programs that they can participate in. So the, the last area of employer activism that we call out in our report is around helping their employees to navigate and bring those different types of programs together so they get more use and therefore better outcomes. Would one of those examples be, for instance, I think Walmart was in the news for steering their employees to certain imaging facilities. Is that right? Well, imaging is certainly an area where, you know, is helping employees, steering employees, nudging employees makes a lot of sense. And, and the reason that we see imaging being used a lot in this area is because there's a big price differential between uh, you know, imaging being done in an inpatient setting versus imaging being done in a standalone facility or more of an outpatient setting. And so when there's the possibility of choice and there's a big price difference and the employer feels like the quality is equivalent, you know, they're going to they're gonna start taking that opportunity to uh, help navigate their employees to that lower cost care setting. So it's an excellent example and we see that happening in many different areas, not just imaging. Primary care is another example of that. You know, the difference in price between a telehealth visit versus a retail visit versus maybe your own primary care clinic versus an urgent care center. All of those have very different prices, very different levels of convenience and access. And employers can really help their employees navigate to the one that's going to be convenient that's going to be of high quality, but, oh, guess what, also has a lower cost. Are some employers becoming even more active by questioning maybe why an image is being done in the first place, say, for instance, low back pain? Well, I think that's, the, that's kind of the next level in the phase two, right? I mean, the first, the, the first phase is when you have a choice between, you know, A and B, can you steer your employee to the one that is a more efficient, a better value? I think the second kind of question out there for employees, what they're starting to work on is, does your employee need to go to A and B at all? Or would they actually rather, are they better off going to C? And so we see 
see some classic examples of that, right? And 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 part part some of that is around surgery, for example, versus physical therapy and other therapies. So instead of going to kind of the the most expensive, evasive answer to a medical issue, let's start with less evasive, more efficient types of care pathways. So let's start with physical therapy and then later see if you if you still need surgery. Well, actually, in our report, we're showing we're even going to another level. We now have examples of employers that are having their employees do some physical therapy at home. So they can be they can be sent home with instructions for physical therapy, especially when we're talking about things like range of motion mm-hmm. for you know knees and elbows and shoulders. And there's technology now that can help measure the progress of them doing these exercises um, and, and really showing the progress of how the, their physical therapy around range of motion is working. And is it successful or not? So now we're not talking about just do you have surgery versus do you try therapy, but also we've even got options for therapy about, about potentially doing them in the home at, at a much lower cost with much more convenience. And we see a, a really large uptick, in fact, um, of employers who have implemented telehealth services for their employees, really almost a doubling of the percentage of employees that offer uh, telehealth services. So in, in a very, very short time, it's, it's a real opportunity there to help your employees you know, get to that, that less expensive place for care. So a lot of opportunity there. One of the things that jumped out at me in the report is how many families don't have enough money in the bank to pay their deductible, whether it's, you know, $2,700 a year or over $6,000 a year. Do you think these high deductible plans, which, you know, came into favor a while back, will fall out of favor? Well, I mean, I, I think you're bringing up one of the most striking insights that, that we have from our, our report this year, and that is the, the dissatisfaction with some of the cost sharing. And, and, I, and I think it's something that we all, you know, everyone who works in and around the health industry or with, with employers that are providing this insurance need to think about when a third of consumers with employer-based plans tell us they don't have enough money to pay the deductible. That's really striking. We can now see why there's dissatisfaction with some of these higher cost-sharing plans, why individuals and families um, are very concerned about how they're going to pay their rent or their electric bill the same month they have some sort of health incident, which causes them to go into their deductible. So that, that does bring up the question of, how, you know, will we see high deductible health plans fade out or go away? And I don't necessarily think that that will happen. We certainly see the interest of them in them slow down. Um, I think we're also seeing the number of employers that are offering it as the only option for their employees. That may also cause some dissatisfaction. I think ultimately what employees want is choice. They want to be able to make the decision to go into the high deductible, or maybe they want to pay a higher premium each month and have less cost sharing at the point of care. They want to kind of spread out their healthcare spend over the year by doing it that way. So we have seen, and this is something that we tracked in, in our report and a touchstone employer survey that our firm runs every year uh, with large employers across the country. 
We have seen the interest in high deductibles slow. We have seen the interest in uh, narrow networks start to increase. So employers are definitely looking for what's the next option? How can I help manage these costs? We know that the high deductibles have done a very good job of reducing utilization, but now we're unsure if it was the right utilization. We know from our consumer surveys that people are telling us with high deductibles that they're forgoing care. They're not getting prescriptions filled sometimes due to cost. They're not going to see specialists sometimes due to cost. And the question for the health system and for society at large is, is that foregone care something they needed or is it something they didn't need? And that's a very tough question to answer. Speaking of cost and of prices, you started off in the beginning talking about um, the medical cost trend being driven by price, not exactly utilization. And we're now entering an era of these new curative or life-changing therapies, whether it's CAR-T or gene therapy or other things that are going to cost six and seven figures. And I think a lot of people are wondering how we're going to pay for that. Did the employers in the survey talk about that at all? Well, you know, one of the inflators of trend for 2020 is, are, is prescription drug spending. And prescription drug spending will be ticking up over the next decade, in fact. And part of the reason for that is because the share of the type of drugs we're paying for is changing. So let me explain what I mean by that. In 2010, and when we look at the proportion of drug spend, about 20% of what employers were spending is for specialty drugs, and about 80% was for non-specialty drugs. So specialty drugs are the more, typically more high-priced. There are things like injectables. That sometimes there are drugs that have to be given in a physician's office or in a clinic setting. They are typically treating very um, sometimes rare diseases, sometimes you know, oncology, cancer treatments, things like MS, multiple sclerosis. So a lot of different needs that are out there in specialty drugs tend to be the higher cost ones for those type of treatments. So back in back in 2010, the split was about 80% non-specialty drugs, 20% specialty drugs. If we fast forward to 2016, we're now up to 42% of the drugs are now specialty drugs and 58% are non-specialty drugs. So that proportion of spend is, is more and more being influenced by specialty drugs, and specialty drugs cost more. So there's a very good reason why that we call it an inflator for 2020, and it probably will be for some years to come, because the drugs that we're buying are more expensive than drugs that we've purchased in the past. Now, to your point about these great innovations and cures, you know, a couple of things I would say about that. One is... Um, we, sometimes these are substitutions, right, for if we can cure someone of a disease, and even if that cure is very, very expensive, in the long run, it may be a lot cheaper than the alternative. So a great example was a lot of the hepatitis C drugs from several years ago were very, very expensive, but they had the capability of actually curing people, some people, of hepatitis C. And that may mean that that individual would no longer need a liver transplant, which is also very expensive. So it's not it's not as simple um, of an equation of just saying these drugs are very expensive and therefore they're going to be a problem. 
sometimes these drugs are expensive because they're they're curing people, they're getting people back to a, more of a healthy lifestyle. And so we kind of have to think about the costs holistically. Are they going to save money in the end? And that's why we're starting to see some very innovative areas of drug pricing. But when you get to seven-figure drug costs, we see pharmaceutical companies entering into value-based contracts or at-risk contracts where they're saying, if we don't, um, you know, if this drug doesn't help you the way we think it is, then, then we're going to be at risk and you're not going to have to pay for it. Right. I think this summer, Louisiana starts its um, subscription-based model for the hepatitis drugs. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of innovation in drug pricing, and the subscription-based models are part of that. And, you know, you, you think about that equation for subscription-based models, what the states are getting out of it is they now under they now know with certainty how much they're going to spend over the course of a year. So they have certainty, and it's a lot easier for their state budgets to know that. For the pharmaceutical company, they also know how much revenue they're going to get in for, you know, for the whole year. So I kind of use the analogy of the leveling of your electric bill. A lot, you know, if you live in a hot climate like I do in Texas, a lot of times your electric company will say, "Hey, we'll we'll average out your bill for the year, so you're paying the same amount every month instead of paying a whole lot in the summer and then not very much in the winter if you live in the Sun Belt." So it's kind of that idea: how can we level it out and and help people, whether it's a state government or a U.S. company or an insurance company better understand what their costs are going to be over the course of a year. How does a health insurance company or even an employer deal with that when you're looking at the cost of, say, chronic care, catastrophic care over multiple years versus a one-time curative treatment where all of that cost is you know, front-loaded or accounted for in a, in a one-year time frame? Is that a challenge? You know, I think you're bringing up a good point, which is the investment in your employees and and many things that we that we do in the health system. They're not, you know, it's not an instant solution. And, and I think chronic disease is one of those. But you know, what? there's a great reason to tackle some of these chronic disease issues and invest in them. One is let's look at the numbers. A healthy employee is going on average is going to cost their employer about thirteen hundred dollars over over an annual period. $1,300. Now, if we go to a, a, an employee with a chronic condition, you're now going to be spending about $4,700 a year on that employee. If we now step up to an employee that has a complex chronic condition, that means they've got two chronic conditions simultaneously, you're now going to spend about $11,000 a year on their health care. So there's a, there's, a, there's a very big substantial difference between what you're going to spend, what U.S. businesses are going to spend on, an, on a healthy worker versus a worker with a chronic condition versus workers with complex chronic conditions. And the second part of this is it, the, the, the trajectory is not looking good. So when we look at the share of our workforce that's considered extremely obese, that was 3%. Um, in 2005, and it's now in 2016 that had risen to 5%. Share of workforce that's obese, 23% in 2005. In 2016, that's now up to 27%. So we're actually kind of going the wrong way in, these, in, in things like obesity 
in extreme obesity, which are often precursors to other chronic conditions um, like heart issues and diabetes. And, and we know that those cost employers much more. So the idea that they need to invest in chronic disease management is actually a, a here and now idea because it's costing you money every year. You actually jumped ahead to my next question, which is exactly about chronic disease and obesity and, and type 2 diabetes. With employers getting more active in managing that, are there any privacy concerns for employees as their employer wants to hook them up to Fitbits or Apple Watches or prod them into programs? Are there penalties for not doing those things on behalf, on behalf of the employee? There's certainly privacy issues, um, but let me take a step back and say, what, what's, you know, for employers, what's kind of the number one mantra they need to start with when thinking about how they set up their benefits and choice has to be the top of the list. So you take away a lot of issues when you're giving employers choice, when you're giving them choice in terms of which type of health plan they can be a part of when you're giving them choice in the terms of which type of special programs they can they can work in and be a part of. So really, if you start with choice, it alleviates a lot of issues. I think the second kind of mantra is we have to think about incentives. Um, and there's you know there's incentives and disincentives, and they're often two sides of the same coin. So one doesn't have to you know you can you can do this sometimes with honey and not vinegar. You know, you can encourage employees to participate in these programs by actually rewarding them for doing so. So they can gain points, which gains gift cards and so monetary incentives. You could reduce and give them a discount on their premium if they participate and show progress in some of these areas. So there are ways to put forth these programs in a way which respect employees' privacy gives them choice around participation and how they participate, and then use the power of incentives to try to, uh, you know, drive people to that choice. And I, and I think we, you know, all up and down the line, we see this kind of choice matrix being part of employee, employee benefits. So if we even start about which plan you choose, you know, employer, employees are already making a choice. They choose a high deductible plan, their monthly premium, Will most of the time be lower, but they know they're going to be more at risk when they have a health event in terms of paying out of pocket. So there's a choice there. When they choose, let's say, a more narrow network plan, they may know that their premium is going to be lower, but they won't have as many choices in terms of the hospitals and doctors they can go to. So they can make that choice about whether they want to choose a narrow network that's cheaper, but they have fewer choice, less choice in terms of their doctors and hospitals. Or they may choose a broader network, which will have a more expensive premium, but they have a lot more choice around their doctors and hospitals. So I think that's the, the main element to start with when building these programs is choice. Let me just jump for a minute to mental health and depression treatment. Your report says that 75% of employers offer these types of programs up from just 34% uh, five years ago. Yet despite that increase, few workers use the programs, even if they think they should have. Despite the fact that there's a tight labor market, are workers too nervous to, quote unquote, come out at work about these issues? 
Well, we're, we're kind of in a brave new world, and, and it's a good thing we are around around mental health issues because this is probably one of the most important health issues of our time. And our own data shows that employers are taking more of an interest in it. So from a data perspective, back in 2014, 34% of employers had a were offering a mental health program. And as you mentioned, if we fast forward to 2018, that's now up to 75%. Now, some of that is, you know, there's some regulatory policy issues with the, the mental health parity law. So there has to be more parity around services. And so that's probably one answer for that, why we're seeing that increased uh, interest. But there's other reasons as well. The stigma, the, it, you know, as, as you mentioned, the kind of the coming out around mental health issues, we're seeing more and more CEOs and executives of U.S. businesses step forward and say, we're no longer going to have shame around a health issue that, by the way, is just another organ in our body. You know, the brain is an organ in our body, just like our heart, our lungs, or others, and we shouldn't treat it differently um, or really treat it differently by not treating it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have a lot more, you know, a lot more publicity and um, leadership from U.S. employers standing up and saying, we're going to take, take these issues on. And there's a great reason for that, um, because uh, when, we, when we address mental health issues, it actually helps uh, all of our, um, all, all our whole health holistically. So I want to go back to some of the numbers that we were talking about before. So our healthy individual and who are spending about $1,300 on. If we have, a, if we have a, a worker who has some complex chronic conditions and a mental illness, when those are together, we're going to spend about $15,000 on them for their health care. So it's a tremendous increase in our spend when someone has a mental health condition. And the reason that happens is because individuals with mental health conditions typically have a very difficult time managing chronic conditions and managing their overall physical health. So it becomes a, it becomes kind of a, a, a very connected issue and why it needs to be addressed. Now, you've also brought up the point about, so people using these services and not, and not seeking treatment. And this is why I say we're on, we're kind of entering that brave new world where we have more access to these services through employers and through businesses, but we still have some issues. There's still some stigma out there. There's still individuals who think, well, I'd just rather handle this on my own or I can't afford treatment. So 51% told us they could hand, they thought they could handle the issue on their own. That's why they did not seek treatment. So we need more education, right, to help employees understand you don't have to go this alone. 35% of employees told us they couldn't afford the treatment. So we need to have, again, more education and more special programs in terms of health benefits that we make sure cost isn't a barrier to getting these services. And 29% told us that they did not know where to go for the mental health services. And this is an issue we still haven't really figured out because in many areas of the country, there are not enough mental health providers. So we'll probably have things like technology that will help us there, and we'll see more of these mental health visits be done through telehealth and virtual health, and so you can get more efficiency from the mental health workers that we do have. 
We'll put a link to the report in the show notes, but what else do you want to mention about your findings for the 2020 medical cost trend? Well, I think we covered um, a, a lot of the a, a lot of our our key findings. One, I'll just mention in terms of employer activism and some other things that they're doing. I've, I've talked a lot uh, during our discussion together about the different types of programs that are available to employees. So we things like tobacco cessation programs, biometric screenings, special fitness programs, weight loss management programs. There's a lot of different programs that employers have invested in, but the challenge that we've seen is they need to go the extra mile to help their employees understand that they are available and how to navigate them. And the reason I say that is because participation in some of these standalone programs is not very high. It's often under 20% of the employee population is taking advantage of these programs Yet most of these programs are, are being offered by employees. The majority of employers are, are offering these programs, but very few employees are taking advantage of them. The other thing I would say is that um, for those employees that are participating in these programs, they've had a, they say they've had a very positive in, impact on their lives. So we've got a disconnect here and we've got an opportunity and that's why we think employers need to invest more into navigation, not just care navigation once they're in the health system itself, but also benefit navigation, helping them to better understand all of the resources that are available to them and helping them navigate through those. That's another area of employer activism we expect to see in the coming year. In other words, an employer would be more proactive about telling their employees which plans and which benefit packages would be better suited to someone based on their individual situation? That's right. So and that's exactly what we're talking about. So number one, making sure the employees understand all the programs that are available. Number two, making sure they're more connected. Often these programs are siloed. And so you're, you're going to fill out a form and you're going to a separate website and you're going to sometimes even a separate provider network. So I'll give you a great example of, of, of what that disconnect would look like. You could go to your primary care physician and talk to them about stress management and, and, and mental health issues. And that primary care physician may say, well, I, I think you should go see a mental health professional um, and let me suggest one that you could go see. But that primary care physician that you're going to may have no idea, and you may have no idea, that you already have on your benefit plan a separate program that offers mental health visits at, at no cost, no cost sharing to you, for example. And there's a separate network of those providers that you can go to. So some of this is employers really connecting the dots for their employees. And the way I like to put it is, look, you've already invested in building and, and, and making these programs available to your employees, now it's time to go the extra mile and invest in the coordination and navigation of them. Thank you so much for having this discussion with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. It was an absolute pleasure. To learn more about these issues, visit hamc.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, 
email info at ajmc.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.